I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Well, this is uh, this is very exciting. We are joined by Dr. Chris Honey, Dr. Honey. That's a great. That's name. a great name. That is a really Such great a name. Sweet name. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Honey is a neurosurgeon at the Vancouver <laughs> General Hospital and head of the division of neurosurgery at the University of British Columbia. Uh, he obtained his medical degree from the University of Toronto and a doctoral degree from Oxford University as a Canadian Rhodes Scholar. So safe to say. Dr. Honey, you are both a smart person doctor and a medical doctor. Yes, safe to say. <laughs> Otherwise known as a neurosurgeon, I think you were about to say. <laughs> <laughs> neurosurgeon. That's great. Oh, I'm be using that. We, uh, Dr. Honey, we usually, when we're, when we're sitting down with our uh, expert guests that we have on this podcast, we usually distinguish um, between uh, medical doctors and we call them smart person doctors, people with PhDs. Yeah. So. So, yeah, well, it's, PhDs it's, were the original doctors. That's it. That's uh, it. I, I didn't know that actually. You're, yeah. you're, 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 I think you're one of the first that that uh, holds the title of both, both the uh, smart person and yeah. medical. Um, but the the what's really that, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, there are <laughs> smart doctors. Right? <laughs> it turns out, <laughs> um, uh, really exciting that you're on the podcast because uh, you have a you have a, a very fascinating story, and and we're really excited to get into it, but. Um, in particular, we're excited to talk to you about your your new uh, memoir, The Tenth Nerve, A Brain Surgeon's Stories of the Patients Who Changed Him, uh, which is actually um, available today. Uh, it was released yesterday. And, uh, and so, first of all, thank you, Dr. Honey. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me, and, and thank you for being interested in the book. I, I'm just delighted to be able to uh, chat with you from across the other side of the country. Yes, yeah. yes. So, I, you know what? Let, let's get right into it. You are, uh, you are in Vancouver, um, and uh, why, you know what? Why don't you let us know? Uh, I'm very curious about the story of your time in Liberia in March oh. of 2014. Yeah. Um, maybe you could walk us through what brought you to Liberia. What was the reason you went over there? And, uh, and what kind of, what came from that, uh, that adventure? Uh, well, um, I had done a number of, uh, pro bono humanitarian missions to Ghana. Ghana is a West African country right beside it. And we have a sort of a sister hospital, Vancouver general hospital and Korlibu hospital, in uh, Accra, the capital of Ghana, are, are, are like sister hospitals. And we've gone over a couple times to help their neurosurgeons sort of get up and running. And there is an organization in Vancouver um, called the Corlebu Neuroscience Foundation, uh, run by some uh, nurses, uh, and, and one in particular, uh, Marge Rattel. And 
they found out that the country next door, Liberia is very close to Ghana, um, has no neurosurgeon in the entire country. Hmm. And so they thought it would be a good idea to maybe set up a satellite clinic. I'm sorry, I'm smiling because I'm looking at your, <laughs> your dog. <laughs> it's like he's interviewing me. So we, um, we thought it would be a great idea if we set up a satellite clinic. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to go over there, uh, do some neurosurgery uh, for Liberians and have a Liberian uh, surgeon, like a general surgeon, uh, do some training with me and maybe be able to do operations um, on their own for their own country. Hmm. And so the idea was to go over there for a couple of weeks, uh, operate and ideally train a Liberian surgeon to do some, uh, you know, straightforward neurosurgical procedures. Uh, how, so we how went, straightforward. Like, like what kind of a task is that? Uh, cause, uh, cause I, I, I'm, I'm an idiot. Uh, and, and I, I can't imagine any neurosurgery being, um, uh, easy. Relative. Yeah. Straightforward. Yeah, this, is straight, this, is a, yeah. this is a relative term I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. So, and like anything, um, practice makes you comfortable, right? Yeah, yeah. And so neurosurgery uh, is, a, is a fabulous specialty, but it spans the gamut from relatively simple to phenomenally complex. Sure. And so there are some relatively simple operations, such as drilling a hole in the skull to let out blood. Hmm. And that is that trepanation? Done... Is, that, is that called trepanation? Yes. Yeah. And that has been done by the Incas in 1500s. And um, it's the oldest operation that we know of. Wow. And so it's relative, it's not really brain surgery. It's more skull surgery, like, like cranial orthopedics, but nonetheless, right. it's usually done by a neurosurgeon. And that, that would be something, you know, once you've been, if you're comfortable as a surgeon um, and you're shown how to do it, you should be able to do that. And so there were a couple of these operations that we were hoping uh, uh, to do for them. And when we went over, uh, I landed in Monrovia. Monrovia is the capital of Liberia. I don't know if you know much about Liberia, but it, it, it's a West African country that has never been colonized or colonialized. And it was basically populated by freed um, American slaves. Oh, wow. um, and right around the time of James Monroe, their fifth uh, president. And so the capital is called Monrovia. Uh, and um, Anyways, when we landed uh, with this idea to operate on uh, for about two weeks, the Ebola uh, uh, crisis uh, broke out on the same day. And uh, so I landed in Monrovia, uh, didn't know that Ebola had broken out. You, you remember uh, there was this yeah. huge outbreak of Ebola, yeah, the biggest right. ever. And my wife actually phoned me that night uh, when I was in the hotel waiting to go to the the town where the hospital was. And she said, did you know there's Ebola in uh, Liberia? And there was absolutely no uh, mention of it in the local news. And uh, so we went and as we were operating, this Ebola crisis uh, was blowing up around us. Uh, so that was kind of stressful. How, like when you, when you say that there was no mention of it in the local news, was it like being on the ground there and, and sort of seeing this the crisis you know from the perspective of being in the hospital was it apparent that there was like an obvious no absolutely not on? so no. the first lady um in liberia who died 
it was a it was a child that was probably bitten by a bat, got Ebola, died, and then the child was a so-called patient zero uh, mm. to the WHO. Um, his mom got it, and the whole family got it. But Ebola is a very vicious virus, and it 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 kills you quickly. Um, mm. And so those people in Foya, a small town in in uh, sort of n- northern Liberia, died very quickly. So twelve people died very quickly, mm. and the government at the time thought, "Oh, okay, you know, it's done." But what happened was. Um, someone transmitted the virus uh, into the country, into the into Monrovia, and it exploded. Whoa! So now, and, I, I know. Sorry. That- initially, um, there was a, 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 there was a dichotomy because the minister of tourism, information, international prestige says, Ooh. you know what? There's no Ebola in Liberia, Ooh. and the minister of health said, oh my god. There's Ebola in Iberia, in Liberia, we need help. And when the, the local newspaper finally published uh, the, the fact that there, uh, that there was this big outbreak in the country, they put their, those two statements side by side on the front page of the Monrovia Times. Oh, wow. One minister saying, hey, don't worry about it. there's nothing happening. And the other one going, oh, my God, you know, we're in trouble. Whoa. So the, um, I really appreciated the, um, the editor having the guts to, you know, yeah. Yeah, here's our here's our representation. So wow. it it became it, it was so it's a that exponential rise, right? It it became very uncomfortable uh, towards the end of our stay there when um, certain airlines stopped flying to Liberia, and I got really nervous that I wouldn't be able to get out. Wow. Right. Did it did it impact like no. going there for two weeks to, no. to be able? No, no it, it never really it never really impacted our hospital and and these sort of um these viral outbreaks. Um, COVID included, typically don't affect neurosurgeons who are operating in a sterile room on one patient with a select group of a team. It's more the people on the front lines. It's the nurses. It's the, you know, the frontline workers that are the heroes and they're the ones that are getting it. And I'm not sure the number, but uh, over 300, I think, uh, doctors and nurses died uh, in Liberia uh, from, from Ebola. There's like 1,500, 15 thousand people died uh, during that outbreak yeah wow. yeah i remember it was it was i mean that like that was the first time uh in my lifetime of of like having the notion of a potential pandemic you know like there, there was a lot of there was a lot of talks of mm-hmm. of of this thing potentially spreading worldwide and and i, I remember it was quite it was quite a quite a intense moment in in time mm-hmm. um uh dr honey i i i so 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 there's that element to your trip which is which is wild in and of itself but um adding on top of that while you were there I I understand that you and your colleagues had made a discovery you you identified a new um a new disease is that is No that no so um um we have definitely identified a new disease that was here in Canada. In 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 Liberia, that was just humanitarian. I, I discovered some things about myself in Liberia, mm-hmm. but not about medicine. That that's more very sort of Western, um, cutting edge uh, discoveries that were made in Vancouver. Okay. 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 So this wasn't that this discovery wasn't in Liberia. This this, this no. discovery was here. No, on... that is just a a story. Um, what I was trying what I've tried to uh, articulate uh, in the book is that 
I have learned so much from my patients. Mm. More, I have learned more from my patients than I've learned from my teachers, you know, in, in, in Toronto or Oxford or Harvard. Uh, and at this, this is an articulation of, of seven stories of, of seven different patients that taught me uh, both about medicine, but also about myself. And so mm. the, the story in Liberia is uh, more a lesson that I learned about myself. Uh, I can, yeah. and and what happened was um, there was a child, a nine-year-old boy, with what I thought was an absolutely lethal condition, and um, I said we're not going to operate on him uh, because it doesn't make sense, and for a variety of reasons. And uh, one of my colleagues, one of the African um, physicians, said, uh, "No, we're gonna we're gonna operate on this guy because we're gonna give him a a chance." And so we argued. And he completely convinced me that I was wrong. And then uh, we decided uh, to operate on this child. And the reasons that we operated on the child um, were, were, were things that I'd never really thought about. So I was thinking about the individual patient. Um, I don't think I am going to cure this child. He is going to die regardless of my surgery. It is an overwhelming illness. And the, the African doctor was thinking more about how the child fit into his society. So he was, the child was born in a, um, um, a small town, three days walk from where the hospital was. And he developed a condition called hydrocephalus, which is a buildup of fluid uh, uh, in the head, which we treat routinely here in Vancouver. But the local doctor... Um, the translation to me was witch doctor, uh, but he was the local physician, uh, decided to wrap the child's head in a plaster of um, straw, uh, manure, and mud. And, and then it baked in the sun to like a helmet to hold the head from expanding because as an infant gets hydrocephalus and fluid builds up in the brain, the skull tends to enlarge. Mm. Uh, because the bones of the skull haven't fused yet. And so he was, he created this basically hockey helmet made of manure uh, to hold the child's head from expanding. And, and the, the bacteria had obviously gotten across the skin and into the brain and he had a oh, rip roaring yeah. infection. Oh, wow. And so um, the child's head continued to expand and actually broke this uh, plaster cast. Whoa. And then, um, which was hard for me to think about because I, you know, that is unnecessary suffering for the child. Uh, and I sort of had a, I don't know, maybe a, like a, a hatred for that doctor, you know, for putting the child through that. Um, but the child in that society, uh, was felt to have been possessed. What well, you, you know, the doctor tried to cure it. Your evil broke the doctor's spell. Um, and they were going to cast that child and the mother out because the mother must have done something evil to have a child like that. Wow. And so the, the doctor convinced me that we should operate on this child um, to maintain him in the society. So if the villagers thought that this child actually had a medical illness, even though it was overwhelming and killed the child, that was okay. This was not an evil spirit in the child. And so the child, after we operated on them and the mother were welcomed back into the village 
Hmm. Although in my heart, I thought, you know, this child is not going to make it to his first birthday. Wow. But to, to conceive of a treatment that was more in the context of the entire society rather than that individual was 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 completely new to me. Mm. How um, hard was it for you to for you to over like in that mm-hmm. conversation with the with the other surgeon? Like how was that how challenging was it for you to overcome the you know the training yeah. uh, that you've so, had in your life? Yeah. I I it there were some interesting dynamics because I'm used to arguing uh, a treatment protocol with my colleagues. No, we should do it. There. Oh, have you heard about what oh, we should? Uh, and um, was very uh, definitive in my, because at, at the end, at the end of each day, we got together to decide who are we operating on tomorrow. And then we would go through it. And then I, and I would say, well, we are not operating on this kid. Uh, and here's why boom, 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 boom. And then it was uncomfortable for the African doctor because he was not used to direct confrontation. Mm. Uh, in in terms of um, diagnostic management. And so he had to gently show me that I was wrong. And that was clearly uncomfortable for him. Mm. But everyone in the room was nodding. And it was so clear that I was wrong, uh, Mm. that it was it was easy at the end of the day. Oh, okay, I, I, I understand I I am wrong. Um, You guys are right. Let's go ahead and operate on this child. Hey, do you what was the end result of that operation do you know do you know how that that child yeah um, so the hey. child got um certainly from the operation temporarily better right but uh i think he probably had a very bad infection probably from the manure yeah uh he do, we didn't have access to any tests you know we couldn't do cultures to see what sensitivity and specificity for the antibiotics there's no way that he had access to long-term antibiotics. The brain looked damaged. I, I, I left mm. after two weeks and I assumed uh, he will, that he would slowly die. That, you know, he would get better yeah. and then the yeah. infection would overwhelm him. But, you know, God willing. Uh, out of that experience, what was, the, what was the biggest takeaway for you there? What was, like, what was the key learning? Uh, yeah, so I... Uh, it's a it's a been a recurrent theme, but I started uh, my practice thinking it was me against the disease, right. and I either won or I lost. And I've had a, a series of patients, uh, that child being one of the forefronts, that have taught me it's not it's 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 the illness. Um, you're treating the person with the disease, not the disease. Yeah. Um, I am not the first person to come up with that. William Osler taught people, the can- famous Canadian physician uh, from the 1900s, taught people that, you know, 100 years ago. But for me, you know, I've been always very focused on um, the hands-on attack of a tumor where either I win or I lose. And that patient and a few others have taught me that you know it's really the person right you're treating the the person with the disease not the disease and so that was a that was the take-home message for me are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice it's time to dig deeper 
and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. It's really interesting to hear you um, say that so directly, too, because I feel like through the conversations that we've had on our podcast, talking to patients about their experiences with the healthcare system, it's such a common theme that comes up is that like, I want, I want my doctor to, to see me for who I am and my experience and not just for the disease that I'm living with when they're treating me. And, mm. and so to hear you say that so directly is, is really powerful because I think it's easy to understand how and why doctors would have a tendency to think about just focusing on treating the, the disease, especially because what, what is it called? Uh, like the do no harm yeah. principle of primum like, non nocare is a Latin for above all do no harm first do no harm. But the, yeah. the, the, that concept of the, the, the dissociation between doctor and patient um, has a number of causes, including how we are trained, right? We learn about the disease and the pathophysiology of this particular disease. Mm-hmm. And um, then we go out and try and find that disease in people. Whereas um, you, I have learned so much uh, listening to my patients tell me about how that disease impacts them. That's not in the textbooks. Uh, because everyone's slightly different in how they respond. And um, the ability to listen to our patients, uh, you know, I never really learned that until I started listening to my patients. And that has been um, fabulous because I have listened to some patients who have told me that they have a problem of a disease that no one's ever heard of before. Mm. and we'll we're, we're talk about that in a, in a second, but that has led to the discovery of two diseases, uh, which those patients, let me just take a step back. So when we diagnose things in medicine, it's history, physical, special tests. So the history is the story. Tell me what's wrong with you. Physical test is the examination of the patient. Special tests are like CAT scans, blood tests. And what we try and do is recognize the pattern. Oh, you have a fever and a cough and your white count's elevated. You must have pneumonia. Uh, mm. And let's do a test for pneumonia. Chest x-ray, y'all oh, confirmed you have pneumonia. Why don't you, you know, culture your sputum? Oh, it's growing bacteria. Here's an antibiotic. But if you don't recognize the constellation of symptoms that the patient is describing, our knee-jerk reaction is, you're making that up. Mm-hmm. And so the patients that eventually came to me and, and we, we recognized that they were describing a disease, they were all told at some point in their medical journey, you know what, you're making this up. Yeah. Either, and, and there's two ways of making it up. There's, um, you're faking it, but we call that malingering. So that is the, the, the neck pain after the minor rear injury and I'm speaking to my lawyer and my neck is killing me, you know, I'm going to sue you. That's, that's evil. That's malingering. But then there's um, conversion disorder, which is a psychological 
um, creation. And the patient honestly believes that they are sick, but they're, it's, they don't have a physical illness. And so that was classically described by Freud. So um, examples would be, let's say, a Holocaust victim who loses their sense of smell cannot smell that horrible burning that triggers that horrible memory for them. They actually don't have a pathology in their nose. It's a psychological pathology that is suppressing that aspect of the brain function because it's trying to keep them alive. Mm. Or the child who is abused and is told by his father, go fetch me the belt, I'm going to beat you. And that child becomes paralyzed and can't actually walk to get the belt that he's going to be beaten with. That's the mind changing the function of the brain to protect the organism. And that mm. child will move his legs while he's sleeping or could even sleepwalk. Um, he's not making it up, but, it's, but it is a psychological problem, not a physical problem. And often when doctors see a constellation of symptoms that just don't fit with anything we've been taught in medical school, the knee-jerk reaction is you're making that up. And it's either malingering or conversion disorder. And all of these patients were told they had some kind of, you know, psychological problem. Yeah. Which, which I mean, we've heard on the show, uh, God, over the last six years, countless times from, uh, from patients who are dealing with a, uh, you know, an undiagnosed uh, mysterious illness that they are seeking help for yeah. uh, receiving that kind of, um, that kind of messaging is is so isolating and so so disheartening and and really like provides this like incredible uphill battle uh, within themselves in order to try to find answers to whatever is happening within them. Um, and it's contagious because as soon as it's written down in your chart, you're in trouble. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. So, so, and so that, that is- carries with you. But I met a woman, a patient of mine, who had a, a constellation of symptoms that didn't fit anything. And uh, I listened to her and I just believed her like I there was she was absolutely compelling that this was physical. And she was told, you know, here's the list, you know, list of some psychiatrists you can go to. And she said, uh, it's not in my head. This this is a physical problem. And uh, we. We worked it out. What uh, what was what was it that you worked out? What what did you what did you conclude that she she was suffering from? Yeah, so there, there are, um, this particular uh, patient had what I'm called hemilaryngopharyngeal spasm, H-E-L-P-S, HELPS syndrome. I'm glad and, you said that first because I was reading it here and I was like, there's no <laughs> fucking way. No, you can call it HELPS, but uh, hemi means one side, mm-hmm. laryngo, larynx, pharyngeal, throat, laryngopharyngeal, and spasm. And so these patients, uh, and I've operated on nine of them now, have um, intermittent throat contractions and uh, for no, uh, no apparent reason. So, uh, and the throat can get so um, constricted that it's difficult to breathe. Whoa. And a few of them have passed out. And that, uh, there were two features in her story that made me think there is no way this is psychological. This has to be physical. And the 
first feature was that it was occurring while she was sleeping as well. So the sleeping brain cannot cause a conversion disorder to protect the body because the brain is sleeping. Mm -hmm. And there is very few movements of the body that occur while you're sleeping. I mean, you know, you're, you're rolling around in that, but abnormal movements of the body while the brain is sleeping is exceedingly rare. And there was only one other uh, that uh, cause that I was aware of. And, and that is called um, hemi facial spasm. So the muscles of the face can intermittently contract uh, and that can occur during the day and the night. Mm. And that is one of the, uh, the conditions that I operate on all the time. So I was well aware of this hemifacial condition. It's well known around the world, fairly rare, uh, but I've operated on a ton of them. Are those and just like based... li- little twitches or like no, big? No, that's like... just you're tired. Okay, these that's are... me. Because <laughs> I get <laughs> those all the time and I was like, No, eh. no, relax, <laughs> no these are, uh, you know, they would pull yeah. the face over to one side, close the eye for a while, and then let go after a few seconds. It's okay. uh um, it, it, it's obvious to anybody looking at them. And that is caused, that particular condition, hemifacial spasm, is well known. And it's caused by a blood vessel pinching the nerve to your face. So the nerve, you know, doesn't like being pinched and it, and it twitches. And when I began my practice many years ago, I always wondered why isn't there a similar condition in, if you get the nerve to your throat? Mm. So I was actually looking for this condition for, for 19 years. And then I met her and then uh, it just it sort of fit because she was describing exactly what I was waiting for, um, but it was in her throat. And, and she, t- she turned out to have a blood vessel kinking the nerve to her throat, the 10th nerve, the so-called the vagus nerve. Mm. And when we, took the, when we took that blood vessel off during a, a complex neurosurgical procedure, we, we decompressed that nerve, her symptoms went away. Okay, Whoa. so 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 in order to treat uh, helps you you essentially you essentially approach that the same way that you would approach treating someone with a facial nerve issue, correct? Yes. So there's a series of uh, medical conditions that are caused when a cranial nerve, a nerve that comes out of the brain, is being pinched. Yeah. So you would know that if uh, a nerve in your back, let's say the sciatic nerve, is pinched you get pain down the leg, you get whatever that nerve is doing, that nerve is carries sensation and pain to your leg. And so if you pinch it, you get pain and tingling in your leg, you bang your elbow, uh, hit your funny bone, you get tingling in your hands. Um, You're just triggering whatever that nerve normally does. So in the brain, there's a series of nerves coming out of the brain. One of them is the fifth cranial nerve, it does it's called the trigeminal nerve, and it does sensation to the face. If you pinch that nerve, you get electrical shocks in your face. It's called trigeminal neuralgia. And you can have an operation where you lift the kink off that nerve, and your trigeminal neuralgia goes away. Mm-hmm. So that's one. That's the probably the most common um, cranial nerve. We call it neurovascular compression syndromes. Uh, the, the, the other one is that hemifacial spasm. So you just take that's pressure on the seventh nerve. There's glossopharyngeal neuralgia down your throat. And now there is um, hemilaryngopharyngeal uh, spasm or HELP syndrome and also now uh, Vancouver syndrome. Yes. Now, 
Vancouver syndrome. Uh, I, this is I I this is just so fascinating to me. Um, I, you you had mentioned earlier the the tenth uh, nerve, the tenth cranial nerve, which is the the vagus. Vagus. Nerve. Yeah. Um, uh, the the vagus nerve um, is. Can you can you walk us through like what the vagus nerve sure. is, what what it what it does? Um, Absolutely. So the yeah. yeah. So you know, um, most of your nerves come out of your spinal cord, go to your arms and legs, toes, your sciatic nerves. But there is twelve nerves that come straight out of the brain, and they're called cranial nerves. The first one goes to your nose. It does smell. The second one is what you see with. It's the nerve going to your eyes. And there are a series of, of these nerves, uh, and they're named 1 to 12. Well, the 10th cranial nerve is the vagus nerve. Vagus is Latin for wandering. And the vagus nerve goes from the brain all the way through the body, all the way down to the gut. It's what controls the speed of your gut. It also controls the speed of your heart. So if you stimulate your vagus nerve, your heart rate slows dramatically. Mm -hmm. And it is the connection between the brain and the outside world in the sense of what's inside your body. How is your body uh, functioning? If you get like suddenly scared, um, there, there is uh, a response that you can feel. That is the autonomic nervous system, the automatic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is balanced with sympathetic. That's mm. your fight or flight. And parasympathetic. That's your relax and restore. Mm. And the vagus nerve is very much that parasympathetic. So mm. it, it is the huge output uh, to the body for parasympathetic, which means um, you're digesting, you're relaxing. So it's important to keep your guts moving. Um, it, it relaxes the heart. And the vagus is also important in reflexes such as uh, swallowing. Um, and it controls your, the muscles uh, to your larynx. So it, 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 it's very important in um, uh, speech. Uh, the larynx is your voice box. It has basically two functions. It has a protective function that it closes and protects the lungs. So you don't breathe in water right. or food or anything like or, that. So it's a very, hot, very, hot prim yeah. yeah, hot, yeah, yeah. It's you a don't very want a hot dog going into your lungs. That's, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very primitive reflex, but it also has the ability to control the muscles in your, in your um, voice box to, to articulate speech. It, it reminds me of, we, we did this episode a while ago. I'm not sure if you guys are thinking about this, but the no burp. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, episode. So we there was this um a patient or a person who was presenting like they couldn't burp. Yeah. And so burping is a is a reflex that the vagus nerve is responsible for. RCPD okay. is, they, the, uh, is the condition. And I'm curious because um there's a doctor in the states who is performing this operation where they're injecting Botox. Yeah. Yeah. Um to allow them the what's a flap called? <laughs> The, the why, why are you looking at Jer? I, they, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, I don't fucking know. Let's look to the let's look to the let's look to the MD PhD. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they're injecting Botox, um, yeah. and I was thinking, I was wondering if before you started talking about this really complex neurosurgery that you did, if you were just going to inject Botox into the 
the muscles. But I was wondering, like, why? So, what is that super complex surgery that you have well, to do? Well, yeah, it, to simplify it, it's a pinch nerve. Right. Okay. And yeah. I'm just taking the pinch off. So mm. the pinch is being done by a blood vessel that happened to have a curve or just happened to be pounding up against this nerve and pinching the nerve. And all I'm doing is moving the blood vessel away and putting it where it can't, where it can beat and not touch the nerve. Right. So I, we call it decompression. Yeah. Microvascular. So it's uh, under the microscope, vascular decompression, MVD. I, I'm and, imagine- uh, Sorry. That's okay. Well, I'm imagining when you talk about like removing that, like maybe the blood vessel is sort of curved and, yes. and it's, it's what it's pinching. It's usually in- where the nerve comes out of the brain, the nerve is sort of tethered. Okay. Right, right where it comes out of the brain, it can't move. Mm-hmm. Further down where it's looser, the nerve can move around a bit. Mm-hmm. So if a loop of blood vessel ever gets jammed up right where the nerve is leaving the brain, the nerve can't get out of the way and the blood vessel hammers on it every heartbeat for the rest of your life. So I'm imagining like a, like, uh, like we're watching the magic school bus and there's like a, actually like a tubes, like floaty tubes on a lazy river that are blood vessels and they're floating through this and there's a tree root. That's actually a nerve Uh that's just kind of, it's a little bit loose at the end, but where it connects into the wall, it's really firm. (laughs) Yes. And that, that tube that's going down the lazy river has just bumped up against the edge. Yeah. And got caught, and that's what you're going in and removing the this person who's stuck yeah. in your tube. Perfect. Is that perfect. is that a good analogy? Perfect. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Is uh, that that is the Brian analogy? And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well known around the world. <laughs> oh my God! Your, uh, so your degree much. is Thank in the mail. So much. Uh, this, is, yeah. this is going out to physicians everywhere, just in case they just in case they didn't know the lazy so, river Brian. That, that's an excellent one. But what happens is uh, every nerve is uh, like a wire. And wrapped in insulation, and that insulation can be rubbed off after ten years of heartbeat rubbing against it, and all of a sudden you've got a bare wire which can short circuit and give you these spasms in your face, or in in the case of help, spasms in your throat. Right. So, is what's the risk of another tube getting stuck against that nerve? Yeah, that would be called a recurrence. Oh, and so um, the the blood vessels. Uh, that's our job. We'll, we'll move them. If we let go of the blood vessel, they will snap back into position like a garden hose. They, they've been like that for 30 years, right? So you have to hold the blood vessel away with a little bit of Teflon. So a little tiny shred of Teflon is jammed in there. Maybe like uh, when you cut your Shit. fingernails, that, that sort of size. Yeah. And to hold the blood vessel there for the rest of their life. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. That is wild. I, okay. So, so this is all super fascinating. And which leads me to to Vancouver syndrome, yes. Which which is which is another uh, 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 syndrome that that was discovered by 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 a team of scientists led by yourself, Doctor Honey, uh, back in 2019. Yes. The first thing I want to get out of the way is how impressed I am that you were <laughs> able to identify uh, a disease and name it after the city where you live and and work from, and that acronym perfectly fits. The disease. Can, can you get what does Vancouver stand for in Vancouver? Yeah, Central? so let me let me go through it. So um, Vancouver is vagus. So the nerve we're talking about vagus associated neurogenic cough. So that's the first part. So the the syndrome is the remember the vagus nerve. We talked about it. Yeah. One of the things the vagus nerve does is sensation to all the lungs, trachea, bronchi, and if you 
if you get something in there, you feel this intense tickling sensation. That's the vagus nerve. It doesn't hurt. It tickles, right? If you get some, if you get a fish bone up in your throat, it hurts. Yeah. And probably that's evolutionary because you could reach in and pull it out. If that fish bone gets past your vocal cords and it's in your lungs, it doesn't hurt anymore. It tickles. And it triggers this incredible cough because there's no way you can get your fingers past your vocal cords and pull that. The only way you'll survive is if you cough out that fish bone. So the vagus nerve sends a tickling sensation to the brain that is um, this incredible uh, desire to cough. So there are patients in the world who have cough and nobody knows why. They don't have an infection. They don't have acid reflux. They don't have asthma. They don't have this. They don't have that. They've got what is a blanket term. They call it neurogenic cough. Nobody knows what it's caused by. We think we do, but nobody knows what it's caused by. So this is a a reason for a neurogenic cough. It's the vagus nerve. So vagus associated neurogenic cough. Why? Occurring due to unilateral vascular encroachment of the root. So one side of the vagus has been encroached pinched by a blood vessel and that's the 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 sim symptoms that we're describing and the actual cause so vagus associated neurogenic cough due to unilateral vascular encroachment of the root okay and wow uh, were you were you sitting down one day and and writing it and going (laughs) and going well this is what this is and then like almost almost like you were decoding like some like wartime code you just you kind of yeah, like so we were lean back um, and went oh my oh god, my god. Yeah. <laughs> so we were actually hiking in uh in whistler uh, up the picas uh, traversed up to uh the rendezvous to have uh, lunch with a couple of my fellows so every year i train a neurosurgeon from somewhere around the world and uh two of them were with me and we were hiking up we were we were like talking about this and and it, it came out on a napkin at the rendezvous lodge Wow. <laughs> I, I, it's my favorite. Like, I, I think about like trying to name, like na- naming things is hard. Na- like na- coming up with a brand yeah. name is tough. Like naming a podcast, not easy stuff. Uh, but naming a disease seems a lot easier to me. It's like you just you just name you just name it what the fuck it is. <laughs> but to come up with a name of what it is and have it fit so perfect, that must have just felt dandy. <laughs> that must have felt so nice. Well, um, yes. but what um the 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 journey's not over because um the goal is to get that information out around the world right and uh the problem that we faced initially was there's a lot of people with neurogenic cough Mm. and when you do an mri you know hey you know you got a vessel near your vagus nerve um do you have Vancouver syndrome, or do you have some other cause of neurogenic cough and you just happen to have a vessel near your vagus nerve? And so what we need is a definitive test to prove before we operate, yes, you've got Vancouver syndrome. Otherwise, you're going to get hungry surgeons operating on people who actually don't have it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It'll be negative, negative, negative. And then there'll be pushback saying, yeah, this doesn't really exist. And so we waited, it's taken us about two years to really figure out what the definitive test is. Uh, and now I think we have a definitive test because we do not want to operate on someone, you know, who doesn't have this right. condition. 
we only want to operate on it if they do. And how, then how we do need you, to. How sorry. do you test? How do you test for it? And if you can use the um, the lazy river analogy while you're <laughs> describing to us how that, then feel free to use yeah, it. I mean, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Uh, we'll we'll be sending you your your residual checks uh, shortly as I, as I use your analogy. The um, well, the thing about Vancouver syndrome is that it's one sided, and that's weird, right? If you get a cold or a psychological problem or a acid reflux, it's going to be both sides. It would be incredibly unusual to just have a one sided problem, and so what we did was um, we're anesthetizing the vagus nerve and seeing if their tickle goes away. And then a week later, we come back and we anesthetize the other vagus nerve. And if the tickle does not go away, we know it must be on the other side. If the tickle does go away, we know it's a bilateral problem. It can't be, it can't be Vancouver syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is the test. And that test has a has two purposes. One, it's a definitive test, but two, there's a sophistication about it. You can't just willy nilly um, uh, anesthetize a vagus nerve. You have to know what you're doing. So that's going to take it out of, um, you know, would be surgeons, right? It's you're only going to be able to do this at an advanced center. uh, And, and, and that was another thing that we wanted to do. So in terms of like, when you're looking for that, that, so like, the, I guess my understanding is that you're then once you know that, say you've done this definitive test and you determine that, okay, it's in the right side, then I assume yes. that you're looking for the potential oh. blood vessel that could yes. be causing Then we look at the, because there's there's sort of two sides to the lazy river. Hey, there's the right side and the left side. Yes, and thank you. If if there's an obvious vessel pressing, uh, sorry, if there's a, uh, if there's a, what did you say? Obvious you tube. The tube. The yeah, tube. Yeah, yeah. There's an obvious tube pressing on that tree on the right side, but there isn't one on the left. And when I anesthetized their right side, their symptoms went away. Then, hey, um, I bet that that tube is the cause of your problem. Let me go swimming in that river. Yes. And I'll move the tube away. Uh, for you and not disturb anything else. I'm with I, you. I, I feel like I could do the surgery. I, yeah, yeah. And Brian, you're almost there. Honestly, Brian, we have a we have an arcade machine here at the studio, and it's got a game called Tubin. And let me tell you, that game is going to be key training for you yeah, right. to operate in the next. I mean, maybe twelve months. Maybe yeah. uh, so, let me know when the fellowship. Uh, the, yeah, we got, uh, we got applications. A, come up. Yeah, we take them a couple years in advance, but uh, I think there's an opening in 2024. Well, uh, <laughs> great, great, wow, great, great. So. One of the important things in medicine is that um, it's confirmed by someone else, right? It, it, this isn't just, oh, Dr. Honey's fantasy, in, you know, in Vancouver, he's making this stuff up. You need it proven by someone else in order for it to be absolutely, yeah, this is, this is the real deal, right? Not just some random thing that happened in Vancouver. And so that has not happened. We, this is so new that we, ha- and, and we were trying to sort out this, definitive test before we you know announced it uh so the that that has yet to happen we call that knowledge translation or kt and uh so this what we're doing right now is knowledge translation more to the patients Mm -hmm. uh but we have knowledge translation to surgeons where we host meetings 
And I am, uh, there's a group of neurosurgeons around the world who are interested in this particular operation called microvascular decompression. And, and I am the president of that group in, in the world. And we were supposed to host the meeting in Vancouver in 2020. Oh, but guess what? Yeah. Yeah. And so we're actually hoping to host the meeting in Vancouver this summer. And so 80 to 100 of the top neurosurgeons around the world are going to come to Vancouver and they're going to hear about Vancouver syndrome and help syndrome. And, and uh, we're working on one other. And so, then the, the idea, and then the idea would be that then they would, when they, they go see back, pre- they see patients that are presenting with this sort of thing and they say, well, like maybe we'll try to let's investigate them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, um, so it never, it, it won't, uh, at least in my mind, it won't be the truth until someone else publishes their case series saying, yeah, we did that. And so wow. there's, there's, uh, there's probably a case report coming out of Saskatoon soon and a colleague of mine in Sydney is working up a series of patients, uh, that probably have Vancouver syndrome, but it's not yet out there. Right. And so, um, that's what I'm waiting for. And so, and medicine moves slowly. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it might take a generation before, uh, people say, you know, that's not, that's crazy. Uh, you can't cure cough with brain surgery. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, in, in the next generation, they'll say, yeah, um, let's, let's, I know you have a cough. We don't know what the cause is. Let's just investigate you in case you happen to have Vancouver syndrome. Have you ever thought that this might be like in, in like 25 years, this might be the equivalent to like the I smell burnt toast commercial that's on TV and like heritage moment where somebody's like, my cough is, my cough is gone. The tickle, yeah. the tickle is gone. Yeah. yeah, that would be lovely. So Wilder Penfield is one of my heroes. Uh, he was, uh, he was actually an American. He was born in Spokane, Washington. Uh, he was a Rhodes Scholar. Um, he's a, and my mom was a, um, and, and he, and he eventually became a neurosurgeon in, um, McGill and, and did a lot of phenomenal work, including, um, learning the orientation of the motor cortex. And my mom actually interviewed him. She was a, like a CBC reporter in Montreal. Oh, wow, and I cool. think, um, the, the, that she pushed me, uh, to be a Rhodes scholar because of him. Well, well I, 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 I was, I, this is a perfect segue because I, I'm, I'm really curious to know why you chose neuroscience. What, what was the, what was the impetus for you to take this path? Yeah. So nothing ever, nothing else ever interested me hmm. um, or until I met my wife, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I was, nothing has ever uh, like, I, I wanted to be a brain surgeon in grade six. Wow, and uh, I, I like drawing the brain, and for various reasons, I, 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 it has drawn me over the years. You know, I, I like the drawing it. Um, I like the fact that um, yeah, there's there, there's it's so complex. There is so much more to learn about it that that any Joe could probably spend a lifetime and 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 find something about the brain. Um, I liked the complexity of the surgery. Um, and now, um, you know, the best part about it is, uh, the, the colleagues that you get to work with, like the, it attracts really, uh, great people. And I really like the, the nurses and my colleagues and yeah. And the, and now, you know, helping the patients, is just, a, a just, just an honor. There's something I found, uh, that sort of struck me there when you, when you said, um, when you said, you know, maybe in the future, uh, somebody will present with a cough and it could be cured by brain surgery. Um, I wonder if there's any stigma around using uh, an approach 
uh, like brain surgery that that seems like it could be high risk yeah. at least from my like lay person perspective yeah um to fix something like a cough do you do you is that an uphill battle at all you know i'm not looking for work uh, you know if if they don't want surgery uh, we're not going to r- twist their arm but it's mm. just going to be an option and so right. some yeah. of these patients um for example, the trigeminal neuralgia, when you pinch your trigeminal nerve and get these electrical shocks into your face. Um, in the old days, people killed themselves. Oh, uh, wow. The pain was so severe, uh, they, it was called suicide uh, headache and, and patients killed themselves. And yeah. now there's a cure. Yeah. So whether coughing interferes with your quality of life enough to warrant the potential risks of brain surgery will be a very patient-specific uh, um, decision. But mm-hmm. they need to at least have the option to say, um, hey, we have a cure for you. Right. And whether they choose that or not uh, will, will be very patient specific. That's so a great point. The coughing can be um, devastating because yeah. you yeah. can't work. It's, it's incredibly stigmatizing now with COVID. Oh, yeah. you know, everyone thinks you're, you're spreading the virus. I, yeah. yeah, I, I live uh, with cystic fibrosis. So yeah. I, like, I know coughing is uh, coughing is a huge pain in my dick. Like it's, I, I, it's, it, I hate it. Though to be fair, uh, it makes your abs look really good. It, that, to is be the, fair. that is the <laughs> only upside and it, qu- and it is quite an upside. Dr. Honey, we're coming to time here, but before oh. we, before we wrap, I'm, I just want to throw back to the book. So again, folks, uh, the book was released yesterday, The 10th Nerve, A Brain Surgeon's Stories of the Patients Who Changed Him. Um, this is your first book. Um, yes. Uh, this, is, this is also your first interview. I got to say, you're, you're fucking nailing it. Um, uh, you, you, what, was the, uh, what was the process of, of writing a book? Like, how, did you enjoy it? Do you think that yeah. this is something that you will, you will perhaps tackle again in the future? Um, yeah, halfway what, through book what, two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually really enjoyed it. I had hip surgery uh, two years ago and I was sitting in bed and there was nothing I could do. And so I started writing and I banged off basically a chapter a day. Wow. And the writing is easy because I'm just telling the stories. Mm. What I didn't know, and this is all news, uh, new to me, the editing is unbelievably difficult you know and so the editors chip chop i don't like this that that was hard that's like two years worth of editing but uh i really enjoyed the writing and i hope you enjoyed the stories uh we'll see well i'm really looking forward to reading it yeah Yeah. i mean if if the uh if if this interview is any is any indication you know you're a great storyteller (laughs) uh you're a great speaker so i'm sure this translates very well onto the page uh, again, folks, the tenth nerve, a brain surgeon's stories of the patients who changed him. Um, it is available now wherever you find books uh, from uh, uh, Penguin Random House Canada. You can find the book on Amazon, Chapters Indigo. Uh, ask your local bookshop. It's available now. Um, available on ebook, audiobook, and hardcover. Uh, Doctor Honey, this has been an absolute pleasure. We we are so happy that you took time out of your day today to sit down and chat with us. And uh, honestly, like, I, I, we'd love to have you on the show again in the future. This neuroscience stuff, neuroscience is the best. So yes, it, is. Uh, yeah. it really a treat to have you on. Thank you so much. Well, absolute delight and pleasure. Thank you for making it so comfortable and easy. And for the great analogies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> That is it for today. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. 
If you like what you heard, make sure that you share our podcast with your friends. We love those extra ears. Sick Boy Podcast is a Snack Labs production. It is produced by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, Brian Stever, and Lauren Sankey. Sound design is coming to you from Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. The music of the show is from our friend Rich O'Coin. And Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. That is it for today. I'm Brian. I'm Taylor. And I'm Jeremy. And this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.